How has Greek drama changed the ways that we experience opera? Find out on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Published histories of opera differ in a myriad of ways, but one thing that they all agree upon is that opera was born out of Greek drama. On this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we have the first part from our opera boot camp, Opera and Greek Drama, which took place as a live course earlier this spring. Guild lecturer Matthew Timmermans explores stereotypes of Greek drama found in examples including the vengeful Medea, Wagner's unavoidable legacy, and finally a twist in Strauss's Ariadne of Naxos. The reason we're here today, we are talking about Greek drama. So an overview of what we're going to talk about today, we're going to ask that very basic question, what is Greek tragedy? And surprisingly, I learned it's a little more complicated than I thought it originally was. So you're going to get a very fun journey with me. Uh, and then the second question we're going to ask is how it impacted the development of opera. And so in this first lecture, we're going to explore three operas, not necessarily in uh, of the same plot and of a great chronological variety, but things uh, operas I personally wanted to explore. Cherubini's Medea, Wagner's Ring Cycle, and Strauss's Ariadne auf Naxos. And the last question, that's sort of an umbrella question that I want to kind of keep hovering in our minds, is how has opera affected the ways that we then think about Greek tragedy? Um, you'd be surprised the amount of ways that it actually has. So the basic question, what is Greek tragedy? Well, it's a form of theater from ancient Greece. I'm sure many of you could have guessed that. But more about it, so originally Greek tragedy was actually part of the ancient rites carried out in honor of the Greek god Dionysus, or in the Roman would be Bacchus. And so this is the god of wine, vegetation, fertility, festivity, ritual, madness, religious ecstasy, and theater. So what did it look like? Um, well, the tragic plots were most often based on myths from oral traditions of archaic epics, and they were performed by axers. This may seem very vague to you, and that is because the truth is we actually don't know much about what those original performances looked like. A lot of them weren't necessarily, the stage directions weren't written down, and we obviously don't have any video or recording. And that's kind of what leads to the spectacular story we're gonna go on about how people then imagined what that might have been and how they wanted it to look like in their time. So one of the sources we do have, though, about Greek tragedy was Aristotle, which I'm sure many of you know as a very famous philosopher. Now, he is our primary source, particularly because of his writing, which is Aristotle's Poetics. And in this, he gives us some knowledge, some firsthand knowledge, about the performances that happened in Attica, Greece. Now, of course, this knowledge can be very biased. It was his experience. And also, it's very limited in what he had to say about it, because it was often inflected in what his thoughts on philosophy. So according to Aristotle, tragedy evolved from the Seder Dithram, an ancient Greek hymn which was sung along with dancing in honor of Dionysus, which I, of course, mentioned earlier. And so what he does note about it, and what we know from some scholarship, is that it was improvised, it was originally very brief, and also you might be surprised to know it was burlesque in tone, meaning it was somewhat comedic. Um, and so it contained elements of a Seder play. But over time, as again, I'm sure many of you know, given your assumptions of what tragedy is, it did become more serious. Uh, and another thing to know about it is that a Greek chorus of up to 50 men and boys danced and sang in a circle, probably accompanied by an aulos, which is two flutes. Now, uh, a flute that is actually from one of the uh, tragedians we'll talk about, one of the writers of tragedies in, uh, in Greek times, which is Euripides, this is actually the instrument that he would have known, and uh, I just wanted you to get an idea of what it sounded like.
it can be tuneful, but it is also very hard to tune in the sense of sounding in key. All right, so I wanted to go through a few of the people uh, of the tragedians who are writing about tragic drama during this time in Greece. And so there are three uh, figures that are particularly important. One of them is uh, Aesiclus, who established the basic rules of tragic drama and also invented something that became very important later, which was the trilogy. And so the trilogy was performed over a full day. It was seen as a sort of spiritual experience and also an accumulation of wisdom. And his famous trilogy was called Oresteia, and this includes Agamemnon as well as the Furies. And this will be a huge influence on some of the characters that we'll talk about later in our story about Greek drama. And so another thing that he was famous for was introducing a second actor. I know this sounds very basic in the sense you're thinking, what? There was only one actor in a play? How could they tell a story necessarily? But it was a slow build to coming to the drama that we know today. Another individual was Sophocles. And so he introduced a third actor, which was seen as a revolution at that time. And then he also increased the number of chorus members to 15. Uh, the chorus in his, in so the chorus becomes a very important part of Greek drama, at least how it's imagined in opera and also by later playwriters. And what's interesting about Sophocles is, of course, before we were mentioning how there was a much larger chorus, perhaps 50 people, he reduces it in his plays. And so it becomes less important in explaining the plot. Their main function was to comment on what was happening with the one actor originally, which increased to two and now three. And also explaining, yes, what's going on, but also the characters um, development as well as the conflict in the plot. Um, and so another thing that Sophocles introduced was also scenery and the use of scenes. And so it became a much more, much more what we're used to in the sense of watching a play as opposed to then before where it was more a religious, I guess religious or if, if you consider uh, Greek myth religious uh, experience. And two of the plays that he was known for was Oedipus Rex and Electra. And our last uh, character, at least from this particular time today, is going to be Euripides. And he is probably the most famous playwright that many of you, I'm sure, have heard a na his name before. And that's partially because, yes, his plays have survived longer. We have more of them. But also, uh, he made a number of revolutions in Greek drama. And so one of these was turning the prologue into a monologue about the story's background. So this was a way to make, uh, give us more information about the myth um, beforehand in order to immerse us all in the plot. He also introduced deus ex machina. So this would be different type. I mean, this involves the, the complexity of the scenes, but also this was the scenery being a part of the experience and immersing you and overwhelming you was a part of what was a part of that religious experience in Greek drama. And so bringing in more complexity to that was a very important revolution. He also diminished more so the choir's prominence in favor of monody sung by the singers. So there's more agency given to our uh, main characters and our protagonists. And I'm going to explain a little bit more what monody is. But just to suffice, monody is basically a solo singer singing over a very simple accompaniment. And then he begins to add this sort of psychological realism to the characters. The characters before are sort of ciphers for these mythic characters that are being brought into plays. But now they're getting more individuality, which is something, again, we're going to explore throughout this lecture. Um, and so some of the examples here is I just, uh, especially his female characters begin to get a lot of complexity. Um, and some of you may know some of them. For example, he also has an Electra and he also has a Medea, which is another character which we're going to get to see next season at the Met, finally, at least the Cattobini opera, which we're going to talk about. Um, so another prime actor in this progression of Greek drama into opera jumps us many, many centuries later. And now we're in the 1600s, or uh, coming into the 17th century. And this is the Florentine Camerata. They are, were a group of philosophers, but as well as musicians, who were dreaming about what they wanted music to be. And for them, they saw Greek drama as their inspiration. And so for them, opera was the epitome of having the perfect union, union between words and melody. And so this goes back again to this idea of monody. So they would have a solo singer with the simplest possible accompaniment, and the text was sung with correct and natural declamation, meaning the idea was to hear the words, rather less, less than what you might hear, for example, in a bel canto opera, where it's a lot more about the high notes you could sing and the runs and how you could show off. It was more about the poetry in this case. And so that's what I'm saying. And then the next thing is no picturesque madrigalian flourishes. 
And so a madrigal, for those of you who don't know, is usually a several part piece. It's a song that uh, has a text, and then there's usually four parts, and it's most complex sometimes, if not five. Uh, and so it's kind of, I guess you could call it a choral piece in a way. But the uh, picturesque being this sort of, um, you're listening to the sonorities of the voices to uh, take you away rather than necessarily hearing all the words exactly in a madrigal. Um, and so I wanted to give you an idea of what this sound is like. So one of our first operas that we know of is, uh, well, it's Jacopo Peri's uh, Eurydice. It does give us a great example of what it might have sounded like in the 1600s, this idea of monody. So you're going to hear a simplistic accompaniment, and over top of it, the singer singing in a way that has very little flourish to it, but a each word, so it's syllabic, so each note has a word or a syllable so that you can clearly hear uh, what the character is saying. So again, just our, our brief whirlwind as we move on to our next examples. Uh, so Greek tragedy is opera. We have a lot of early operas. They're actually not, the early operas aren't based on Greek tragedy per se in the sense of the plots of those uh, individuals that we talked about. They're actually based on Greek myths often. Um, and so, our, the, but with Greek tragedy, the operas that we have based on actual Greek tragedies as they're defined, we have Charpentier's Medea, uh, which was in 1693. So now I want to talk a little bit more about Medea, just to kind of give us an idea of how Greek tragedy has transformed in the minds of not only playwrights, but also opera composers. So Euripides' Medea was originally dramatizing the sordid return of Medea and Jason to Greece. And so for those of you who don't know the myth, this was after their heroic quest to bring back, uh, to bring back the Golden Fleece, their own love affair, and then the more tragic Medea killing her brother to aid their escape. And this made it all the more tragic when, uh, the, when the consequences, which is uh, of them getting back to Greece, was that Jason divorced Medea in order to accept the hand of the daughter of the king. Um, and some might argue that his justification was in order to secure the futures of his two children. Um, but Medea definitely does not see it that way. <laughs> Uh, but this is what Euripides' drama focuses on. So it really forefronts Medea, a female character, at a time when, uh, well, men were really in charge. So it's quite revolutionary for that fact. Um, so anyway, you can see from the last line what definitely happens. Medea takes revenge by killing Creon and Creusa, which is the king and his daughter. And she also kills her own sons. Now, this last part was actually added by Euripides. It is not a part of the original story. So. How was that play originally received? It was actually put into a competition, and it did not even place in this competition because it was frankly too progressive. Uh, so this story now, many, many centuries later, uh, inspires uh, writers in the 17th century. And one of these writers is Pierre Cognel. And so he, and this is in France, and so he writes his play in 1635. And this was one of many instances of how Medea was transformed, especially in France, where they absolutely loved this plot. But what they did with it to make it more understandable to them was they transferred it into the court, because of course at this time we have monarchies. And so it was very different from the sort of democratic Athens of the original Euripides, and there was a lot more complexity, shall we say, to it than in the original. So this then gets highly criticized another century later by a friend, or not a friend, but a particular character called Jean-Marie Clément. And this is, as I said, in 1779, he made his own Medea. And in his preface, he attacks the tradition I just talked about before, where she becomes a sorceress. And so for him, he says, if Medea is a witch, a sorceress, and a monster, then one, the audience will have no sympathy with her as a character. Um, so for Clément, he claimed that we must go back to Greek simplicity of the original Euripides drama. So now enter our opera composers. Uh, this is Benoit Hoffman and Luigi Cherubini. And 
Cherubini was a composer in the 18th century, and he was an Italian composer who worked a lot in France, or in France as well. And so these, uh, sorry, Hoffmann I should have mentioned is his librettist. So Cherubini was the composer, he wrote the music, and Hoffmann was writing the text. And so for these two characters, they took Clément's suggestion seriously at the end of the century and returned to Euripides' conception of Medea. So their drama focused primarily on the title figure and exploring her violently changing moods and psychology. So the only change, though, from the original Euripides drama now for Cherubini and Othman ended up being adding an extra day uh, for when uh, Medea was considering whether or not to kill her children, which becomes quite significant in this drama because it adds a lot more humanity to Medea as she, we get to watch her decide why she's doing this. So I wanted to share with you now a particular scene in Cherubini's opera, just to give you, to show you not only the process through which Medea thinks and acts as a character, but how the music aids that and how, because I mentioned before, for especially in the 1600s, that Florentine camarada I mentioned, music to them was essential to portraying these stories because they thought in Greek drama, that's how it was originally performed, correct? So the music in Cherubini is also essential to performing these stories and making them come across correctly or at least effectively to their audiences. So I'm gonna take us all the way to act three when we get to the real tragic moments of this opera. And so Medea herself in act three declares the moral of the story in probably a way that is much more succinct and better than I can. So I'm just gonna quote her directly. Do you not accuse me of shedding your blood? It is Jason alone who will pierce your bodies. The whole universe will learn how I gained my revenge. He'll learn just what a woman who's been wronged can do. And my immortal name will terrify unworthy husbands who betray their faith. But even though she says that, suddenly when she's faced with her children, she drops her dagger. And she says, I feel my heart tremble and my blood turn to ice. My vengeance is lost. I must renounce it. So we, we begin to have this sympathy as we see the inner struggle she has. And I mean, especially in the 21st century when we know so much, or at least when we know and we're thinking so much more about uh, minority communities, especially in when it comes to gender, it becomes a lot more interesting with when this character has this moment where she's clearly fighting because she wants to be seen as an equal and be respected. But at the same time, how does she do that? And what extreme, uh, tactics or what, what does she have to do that's very extreme in order to get that point across? Um, and so what we see is that Hoffman replaces the original Medea's conflict, which was more of a cipher originally. It was psychological, but still a little more about ethics, about women and men and what that means, and makes this conflict become more of about profound motherly love and then control of inner fury. It becomes more psychological, psychological sorry, almost pre-Freudian in a way. So what does this mean musically? All right, so we're jumping to act three. This is the moment when Medea brings in her children and she is going to take their lives. And of course the children don't know, but this is Medea's plan and she hasn't even told um, Jason yet. And so she wants to show him and just completely bring down the world basically. So she begins in this aria by addressing the situation. She's very logical about it. It's a, you'll hear in the music, it's very gentle, it's calm. There's a little bit of a stirring in the orchestra where you get the, uh, the most of the sort of emotional crux of the piece. But overall, she seems to know what she's doing and what she has to, and what she has to do and why. Then she addresses the children themselves. And this is where we start to see her kind of break down, as was mentioned in the previous line. And then after this, we, we now can also hear in the music as it gets more agitated that she's questioning her motivation. And so then she beseeches the gods to save her com for committing this awful crime. But as we all know, revenge is going to overwhelm her reason.
so originally, uh, Cherovini, who is Italian, uh, wrote it for, uh, or it was for Paris, and so it was in French. And I believe next season, we'll actually be hearing the Italian version, because it was then uh, translated into Italian, and that was the, in, as usual, when it goes to Italy, uh, it often, that version seems to survive longer, uh, as you might have noticed with Don Carlos, for example, and so that's, the, in a second we'll talk more about it, so I'm trying to hedge toward that. Uh, but we're going to listen in a second to it in Italian, and you might have heard it in Italian as opposed to French, so you have both versions to listen to possibly. Uh, and so anyway, so where I was hedging is you might have heard the Italian version because it was revived and made incredibly famous by a figure I'm sure many of you know, which is Maria Callas. And so this is interesting for a number of reasons. I mean, Maria Callas, as many of you, are, for those of you who don't know, Maria Callas was a very famous opera singer in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, and in many ways brought opera to many people because it was the age of the long playing record and she made so many records that we now have and people know of. She was also brilliant, obviously. Uh, but Maria Callas was particularly famous for the role of Medea, per, um, partially because of her own uh, persona in the media, which was seen as very uh, turbulent and having a lot of diva-esqueness <coughs> while at the same time being very tragic. There's also the connection with the fact that she was Greek. I mean, this presents a problem for many, many reasons, which if you want to learn more about, I, there is an online class that I do, or I have done for the Guild on Maria Callas, and I talk plenty there about Medea. But to suffice to say, there are a lot of stereotypes about femininity, and particularly negative femininity, that are associated with Medea, and then we're sort of put onto Callas as a result of her being Greek, and having these sort of diva-esque moments that were then translated into a sort of, uh, inability to control herself, at least in many people's eyes. And that can be very negative, but it did help with a lot of people thinking she was the most brilliant Medea they had ever seen. Uh, and so I just wanted to share with you the very limited footage we have of Kalas doing any of her roles, but particularly of Medea uh, here. And so we're gonna, what's gonna be played over here is her first act aria. Now to one of my one of my favorite people who I, I tend to talk about a lot, uh, uh, Richard Wagner or Richard Wagner. Now, Wagner at least was my first uh, intro to opera and Greek drama. So Greek tragedy's most memorable impact on opera is Wagner's Ring Cycle, and this is of course not based on Greek myth, but it's based on Teutonic North or North European myths and legends. But what's interesting about it is that many of his ideas, as we'll go through, were based actually on Greek drama, 
and particularly uh, Oresteia, which was um, Aesiclus's trilogy. Now, uh, so the cycle, the ring cycle, for those of you who don't know, is uh, a festival that has four operas, although Wagner would call it a, there was a prologue, so there's a first preliminary evening, and then there is really a trilogy of three operas, which makes it match more with Oresteia. So Wagner did, uh, before writing The Ring, he did read, actually, the plays uh, um, of Isaclus. So for him, the, the word that followed him throughout the 19th century, and perhaps still today, is this word music drama. And this came about in 1849, when uh, Wagner uh, took a stand that many composers don't do, which is writing his ideas in uh, publications. So people had these before they went to his operas and knew what to listen for, and also for many people what to criticize. <laughs> um, so these three treatises that he wrote was Art and Revolution, The Artwork of the Future, and Opera and Drama. Very big titles, right? These were big claims that irked a lot of people and also excited a lot of people. And so for him, he draw, drew a lot of his ideas from Greek tragedy, specifically that it was performed as a religious festival one that would often pave way to new wisdom. He wanted his works to have this place in our mind as bringing us to a completely new and immersive experience. So the texts for The Ring were actually written just after he had published all of these works about uh, talking about Greek drama and how they influenced his ideas on writing plots as well as music. And so some of the similarities between these two works is that in the, or at least in Aesoclus's dramas, the first act proceeded to a single climax, which for those of you who have seen any of Wagner's operas, this is a big thing. Each of his acts will, are very long, but they're always almost a slow burn until the end of the act where there's a big explosion. And similarly, although not with music necessarily, that was what was done in Aesoclus's dramas. Wagner also begins with a crime and one that uh, basically instigates subsequent events and impacts the way everything that happens thereafter and the people's motivations thereafter. And so this, in the ring at least, was Wagner adding Alvarez's theft of the Rheingold and forging the ring. This was actually not in the Teutonic myth. And so he added this, as well as Wotan's subsequent seizure or, or, or taking of that ring from the Rhine maidens at the very beginning. So Wagner how he translated his ideas into music was one, he saw the chorus as lyric meditations. Remember how I mentioned there was a chorus that would happen in these dramas that would comment on the action and also what was happening with the characters and what they were thinking? So he decided to translate this into music and puts it in the orchestra with what he calls leitmotifs, which are, you might call musical themes that signify different things that are happening in the plot. Um, and so, these, what these leitmotifs end up doing is they actually recur throughout the operas, almost like the verbal motifs that I mentioned happen in Aesoclus's dramas. So an, an example from the, one of those dramas is, he who does must suffer. It comes back several times to tell you, well, someone's gonna do something and they're gonna suffer for it. I mean, this is a very basic example, but we're gonna now go through some musical examples that happen in Wagner, which are far more um, specific, but where he's kind of imitating this same idea. And so what these do, though, is they shape and create and fulfill the audience's expectations throughout the opera or in the previously in the drama. So one of the, the few I want to go through, uh, so at the beginning as, I, beginning, as I mentioned, for those of you who don't know the ring, there is a ring. It is forged. It is a ring of power that Alberich, who is a Nibelungen, forges. No one likes that because they don't want Alberich to become powerful. And so they go and they take it. That's suffice to say that's what you need to know for the moment. Uh, so the ring motif is one of the uh, motifs that occurs in the orchestra and sometimes is sung throughout the entire opera because obviously it's called the ring and it's about the ring. And so, <laughs> sorry, I want to play that one for you and then I want to show you what Wagner does it, what Wagner does with it in some very interesting ways that possibly weren't, aren't necessarily possible with uh, words. So first we're going to listen to this to get it in our, our, our ear. So that is the ring motif. So next, there is something called the Valhalla motif. And what this represents is Valhalla, which is the fortress of the gods. And this becomes relevant to the ring because Wotan steals the ring partially to defend the world against Alberich's terror, but also because he didn't have the money to pay for his fortress. So that is Valhalla. 
Now, this becomes interesting because the ring and Valhalla become intertwined as a result, because the ring obviously is, becomes, at the end of this opera, payment for it. And so you can't really tell from this musical example, but you can tell when you hear it, the, uh, the Valhalla motif follows the same contour as the ring, except it's in the major. And so it's basically signifying musically that these two things are intricately connected. And um, in a way, I mean, the ring pays for Valhalla, so it's kind of one and the same, perhaps. And so he's showing musically how, I mean, A, how Wotan is imbricated in this crime. Um, and it just becomes that much more psychologically, I don't know, interesting. I mean, you may not have noticed before, and so perhaps it's dwelling in your subconscious, maybe. I don't know. But this is what happened with musicals. So I'm going to play this for you so you get this in your ear, and then I want to show you where the two motifs sort of meld and suggest that they are the same. All right? <laughs> So despite being basically the same musical material, they sound very different, don't they? I mean, I know the first time I heard it, I had no idea they were connected. I can thank books for that. Um, but what happens at the end of the first scene after Alberich steals the ring is we have this transition music as we ascend to Valhalla to find, to find out what's happening with the gods. And so as Alberich scurries away, we hear the ring motif going off in the background and then suddenly it bursts into the major as we hear Valhalla appear, and that's when we hear, and that sort of is what's suggesting that the two, it's the closest suggestion you really get in any of the operas. So I just want to play that for you. So first we're going to hear the ring, and then you're, you're going to know when you hear Valhalla. <laughs> that's our ring, right? But what you could hear is as the progression was happening with the ring in the darkness as we were ascending to Valhalla, where it sort of got ambiguous if it was still the ring. It got quieter, yes, but also Wagner was playing with it, and then suddenly it just sprouts into this, uh, this Valhalla motif. So he's, he's really making it ambiguous, or at least making a stronger connection between the two, but also making their differences ambiguous. So another one I wanted to play with just quickly to show you is the sword motif. For any of you who have seen The Ring, I'm sure you at least know the sword motif. It is the loudest and the most obvious and is absolutely delightful. So this motif shows up through all four operas. So when it does, at the end, uh, Wotan has saved everyone. He's stolen the ring from Alberich. 
and he's now paid, used the ring, or the ring as well as the uh, Rheingold that he stole, and paid the giants who built Valhalla off. And so now him and his cohort of gods are going to walk triumphantly over the Rainbow Bridge into Valhalla. And to celebrate the, uh, the occasion, he picks up a random sword that was somehow conveniently left by the giants, even though they took all the gold apparently, but that's all right. And he picks up this sword and boom, we have the sword motif. So now this motif comes back several times throughout the opera, and although it is blaringly loud and delightfully obvious, there's actually some very subtle ways that Wagner uses it to show, like the Greek chorus might have in Greek drama, to show the psychology of the characters and what's going on. And this happens in a particularly poignant moment in the second opera, which is the Valkyrie, or Die Valkyrie. And we, we come now at the beginning of Die Valkyrie, where we meet one of Wotan's children, uh, which this is Zygmunt, and he has now met his sister, who he is Zyglinda, who he falls in love with. Problematic, but that's all right. And, but he is trapped in the house of her husband, who wants to kill him uh, for protecting another woman. And so he needs to find a weapon in order to protect himself from the fact that he's going to be killed in the morning. But there's conveniently this sword that is lying in the tree in the middle of the house. So naturally, Pretty, it works out well, but no one's been able to take it out. So who knows, it could be very slim chances. But Zygmunt also has very bad eyesight, and so he doesn't notice it for basically the entire beginning of the, uh, of the act. But anyway, so what we're about to see, this is the moment when Zygmunt is now alone. He's been told he's gonna be killed in the morning, and he says, oh goodness fate, why would you do this to me? Sings the, fa the famous um, veils of veils apart, which is, you know, tenors hold it for as long as they can, and it's very exciting. And then after that, when he's asking for someone to come save him in the orchestra, we hear the sword motif go out, which is basically saying, mm, maybe you should grab that sword that's right in that tree next to you. But Zygmunt doesn't notice it. He's very, very stressed at the moment. And so what happens is he starts sort of thinking about his predicament, and then he thinks back to Zyglinda, his sister, who he's now fallen in love with. And then he sees a sort of glint in the background, which is the glint of the hilt of the golden sword that is inside the tree, as I mentioned. And he thinks it's maybe one of Zyglinda's eyes. It's just so beautiful and shining there. And so what happens is we have the sword motif very obviously in the orchestra at first, and then all of a sudden it gets subsumed within uh, Zygmunt's imagination, thinking about the beauty of Zyglinda, and it sort of becomes, that motif is not very lyrical, right? It's kind of a then it kind of comes and it's very, it's very delightful and lovely.
then he goes on to sing this very, very beautiful aria, once again inspired by the sword motif, but not about the sword at all. Um, now we're going to go to the end of the act when, yes, do not worry, he finds the sword. And so at the end of the act, Zieglind is kind of like, there's a sword there, by the way. And so then he goes and pulls out the sword, and you know exactly what's going to play when he pulls out the sword. It's going to be the sword motif as loudly as possible. It's wonderful. It's one of the best acts in all of Wagner. Uh, so the last thing I wanted to say about Wagner before we move on is that Wagner then created his own festival, which, as you remembered, it, the, the Greek drama used to be a festival, and the idea was to play several plays in a day, particularly a trilogy. So Wagner created his own version of the Festival of Dionysus at, uh, at, that was in Athens, but he created it in Bayreuth, Germany. And it's held every summer. It's still held to this day since its premiere in 1876. And singers like Birgit Nielsen, interestingly, are known to actually have reduced their fees. I don't know how much you guys know about Birgit Nielsen, but she did at one time in the 60s have the largest fee ever paid to a single singer for performing anything. Uh, and so Birgit Nielsen, who was an avid Wagnerian and uh, sang a lot of Wagner's work, was known to have reduced her fee for Bayreuth, which at that time definitely, after the war, could not afford to pay it. We're going to talk about Ariadne of Naxos. Now, this piece is written by uh, Strauss, wrote the music, and then uh, Hugo von Hofmannsthal wrote the text for it. And for Hofmannsthal, he thought of uh, that opera has always been a Gesamtkunstwerk. Now, Gesamtkunstwerk was a word that, in many ways, Wagner coined in those treatises I mentioned in relation to Greek drama about the total work of art, where everything should work toward one aim of transcending the art work, basically. And so for Hofmannsthal, Wagner simply revived the concept. But for Hofmannsthal, Wagner revived it not correctly. <laughs> so he thinks that he defor uh, deformed the concept of meta-art with his ideas of endless melody and also not using Greek myth. And so for Hofmannsthal, he thought instead opera should go back to being set pieces. So, you know, we have an aria, we stop, we clap, and we have another aria or duet or what have you. Um, and when Hofmannsthal wrote the text for Ariadne, which was one of the first original texts he wrote for Strauss for an opera, in his scenario, he put out in the piece several spots where he was like, this should be a duet, and this should be a trio, and you should take my advice and redu or, uh, stop doing music that's so Wagnerian and so fluid and connected. Because again, for those of you who don't know, Strauss was an avid Wagnerian, as was seen in his Salome and Elektra, which were both composed before Rosenkav and Ariadne which came just after. Um, and uh, anyway, so as I mentioned, Hofmannsthal was, was adamant about this and put several annotations uh, suggesting to Strauss to change his ways. So the plot of Ariadne, it, it basically what happens is that uh, Tapir, a, aristocratic, a nouveau riche gentleman, organizes court entertainment. And there's supposed to be two court entertainments. There's supposed to be a, a comedic court entertainment and then a serious opera. Uh, but it turns out there's just simply not enough time before the fireworks at 9 p.m. to do them both. So they must be put together. And thus we have the competition between Bufa and Seria. But this was an experiment for uh, Hofmannsthal as well as Strauss in combining these two things, being commedia and Seria, or comic and tragic. And it gets a lot of its humor, for those of you who have seen it, from staging this competition between what some may consider high art uh, which would be serious opera, and low art, which would be comedic. Um, all right. So one of the key characters to showing this comedic element to this opera is Zabinetta. And for Hofmannsthal, Zabinetta was supposed to be Ariadne's vital, uh, er earthy is the word he uses, counterpart. So they're supposed to be yin and yang. And Strauss took this as making them complete opposites in many ways. 
So Ariadne takes on the Wagnerian element, having this music that A, requires a gargantuan voice singer, which we have with Lisa Davidson, who is performing it. And then Serbinetta is embodying another tradition, which is the coloratura tradition, having uh, lots of notes, particularly high notes, and also very quick music, and also simpler music. There's a much more reduced orchestra for Zerbinetta's music, in order to show this contrast of the two characters. So how Strauss did this, he brought a lot of irony to the character. And he basically composed Zerbinetta in a sort of 19th century bel canto style. Uh, and this was mainly to delight audiences, yes, but also to kind of make fun of it, because he obviously never had the opportunity to perform, or to compose, sorry, in that style. And so he was taking this opportunity to sort of, you know, poke fun at it. So there's exaggerated gestures. There's, uh, I mean, there's quirky harmonic excursions. But there's also, you'll notice in the aria I'm going to play of Zerbinetta, which is the show-stopping piece in Act Two. There's also modern piano accompaniment to really contrast the. It's still a chamber orchestra, but the much uh, larger orchestral palette that happens with Ariadne. Um, and I, I love this final example. Some of you may notice at the end of her aria, which I will play for you, she does this one final high note. We're, we were typically used to sopranos at the end of a bel canto aria, you know, jumping off the octave and doing this high E flat that's very exciting. And then when she's done, we all clap right after. But Strauss kind of wanted to make fun of uh, audiences who would immediately clap and scream, brava. And so he then has her stay, say, stum, stum, stum at the end, basically to say, ah, ha, ha, you guys didn't actually listen to my music and thought you knew what was coming. Uh, it's very a sort of cheeky response. But there's a lot of those in the aria that he's doing. So I just wanted to uh, uh, share that with you so you could hear some of them. Another thing I want to note uh, here is that there's more than one version of Ariadne of Naxos. It was originally written in 1911, and then it was, uh, it was revised by Strauss in 1916, and so the original version of this aria actually is much more florid to really get across this idea of Zerbinetta being the counterpart of Ariadne. And I'll explain to you why that changed to some extent in the revision. All right, so you got the idea at the end. There was the incredible high note, which another thing I should notice that the original is in F major. And that's important because it means it was higher than the revision, which was put down. So it's the amazing Sumi Joe reaching heights none of us can imagine. Um, 
so what I wanted to point out with the revision here is that Hofmannsthal really didn't approve of the coloratura. He thought it made the character seem sort of flighty and uh, not not the serious earthy. It's not that he wanted to be serious, but he wanted the character to be a, a, a seriously taken, at least, counterpart to Ariadne. And so in the second version, he reduces Hebing Strauss uh, recomposes the aria and re uh, reduces a lot of the coloratura, which I want to show to you. Um, but what I really want to get at here, and I, I hope my point is coming across clear, is that Hofmannsthal and Strauss have very different ideas about what Greek drama should be. Um, Strauss is really, as we'll see, is, gonna, is really following a Bognerian trend of what Greek drama should be in opera, and Hofmannsthal is, tr <laughs> is trying his best to say, this is what I want it to be, please move away from it, I want it to be um, set pieces, I want it to be a little less overwhelming with the orchestra being as loud. So anyway, what we're about to listen to is the revision of this. And one of my major reasons about wanting to listen to it again is A, so you could yes hear how Strauss is in some ways conceding to, uh, to Hoffmannsthal's desires, but also I wanted to share with you the wonderful Riri Grist. So just a little bit about the reception before I, I tell you about how Strauss inputted his feelings on Greek drama into this particular opera. Uh, audiences originally didn't really like the combination of play and opera. So I know I didn't mention this, but originally the prologue was, as, was, a, was a play. And so it was spoken, and then after you would actually see the opera, which would uh, show the result of what had happened in the prologue. Um, people either wanted to come see the play or they wanted to see the opera. And so that didn't work out. And it's funny because I was talking to a friend the other day and there's some people who still go to Ariadne and say, I wish the prologue wasn't there and I just could see the opera part. <laughs> um, but the prologue now was added in 1916 and Strauss uh, composed music for it to uh, dramatize those events. So despite uh, this sort of battle between Hoffmannsthal and Strauss uh, about whether what Greek drama should sound like and generally what opera should sound like, Strauss was still very much uh, in the Wagner camp. And so we see this uh, especially a lot with the character of the composer, which he adds in the prologue. Lusher and the singers have to be louder to get over the orchestra, of course. If any of you have seen Tristan und Isolde, that's probably the most famous instance where at the end she does her Liebestote and she basically melts and, and dies into the orchestra. And uh, we can see Strauss kind of doing a similar thing here with his Ariadne character. And th so this is the moment that was mentioned when Ariadne meets Bacchus at the end. She's done being sad and she gives herself into transformation. And what you're going to hear is a complete contrast with Zerbinetta's music, which obviously Hofmannsthal wanted because he wanted... Ariadne to be the sort of ethereal counterpart to the earthly um, Zerbinetta. But I don't know if he wanted it to go this far because it's delightfully Wagnerian, very loud, very overwhelming, and one of my favorite parts in the opera.
Something I do want to point out, bringing back uh, a connection back to the earlier trends we were talking about with Greek drama. Do you remember I mentioned something called monody uh, at the beginning, where it's more syllabic text and it's over top of a simple accompaniment? Granted, this is definitely not a simple accompaniment that's happening. But what you'll notice in the in contrast to Zerbinetta, who sang lots of coloratura, uh, what one might call something closer to madrigalisms, perhaps, uh, Ariadne would instead sing syllabic. So each note was a syllable or a word, uh, which made, one would hope it would make the text clearer to hear, perhaps. I think Wagner thought it might, but the orchestra and the, the, the size of the voices obviously makes that difficult. But the only point to show, once again, Strauss is going on this, is far more interested in the, probably the musical trend that was happening with Greek drama, while Hofmannsthal had a very different idea about what that was. Um, so the last thing I want to note here is that at the end of the opera, Zerbinetta confesses that transformation, which is Ariadne's destiny, does not last much past sunrise. Until her next love affair, each of her lovers was like a god in his own way. Now, this line, which I'm going to play for you here. I'll play the line for you here first. So what you're going to hear is this is the end now of the duet between Ariadne and um, Bacchus. And then Zerbinetta comes on. And you'll hear the musical texture completely change as it comes back into um, Zerbinetta's world. Zerbinetta finishes singing, we enter back into the transformational Wagner world of, uh, of Strauss. And so again, what I wanted to show with this, in, this interaction between these two um, great artists, that being Strauss and Hofmannsthal, is sort of the way that they were interacting over the question of what Greek drama should be, um, whether or not it should be serious, um, whether it should be comedic. Um, and then how that translates into other words we know, such as like, what is good art? What is bad art? Uh, and I think that's a theme about how different people are translating Greek drama into what they believe art should be and what it should signify. And they're also drawing on this history that a lot of people um, revel in and, and take as having a, um, an important uh, foundation for what we believe art is and using it to then buttress their own opinions about what, how art, what art should be in the future. That was Guild lecturer and audience favorite Matthew Timmermans discussing the fascinating topic of opera and Greek drama. Make sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera, Opera News, and the Metropolitan Opera Guild on your favorite social media platforms to keep up to date on all things opera. I'm your host, Elspeth Davis, and thank you for listening. <laughs>